I mean, that is the story of Proving Ground. Uh, we are in the middle of a series uh, called Proving Ground, and we're basically looking at how God works in all of our lives uh, to prove himself faithful. You know, so much of uh, the way that it seems like we approach matters of faith and relationship with God uh, has to do with our own performance, how, how well we're doing and how we have to impress God or maybe uh, impress other peoples. And church oftentimes can become a place uh, with a bunch of people that are trying to prove themselves uh, to each other and themselves and to God. But the true nature of the gospel, the true nature of the story of God is the narrative not of people's faithfulness to God, not of you and I being uh, performing perfectly, but God's uh, enduring and undying faithfulness to us. He's a covenantal God. And uh, we're going to be in a passage of scripture in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17 uh, today. Uh, we are surveying uh, scenes in scripture, uh, just some old uh, stories that maybe some of you grew up with and they might be new to others of you uh, if you're new to scripture, and that's perfectly great. Uh, we are so glad that you're here. Uh, if uh, you don't own a Bible, uh, you're uh, in a good spot. We're going to put the scripture up on the screen. You can follow along. And we actually would love to give you a copy yourself as you leave today. There's some at the Welcome Center. You can pick up a copy free of charge. We believe that it is uh, the very words of God. It is the infallible message of God to his people. And as we survey these scenes, we, we, we're revisiting some stories across scripture uh, and highlighting some figures because what we've learned is that life is lived here on the ground. Uh, faith is not just something ethereal and mystical. Uh, it is uh, where you live your day-to-day -day experience. It's your relationships. It's your finances. It's uh, uh, parenting. Uh, it is dating. It is all those things. Uh, and the one thing that we all have in common in here is we're all living life and we're trying to figure this thing out. Uh, but the good news is that God has revealed himself to us and that we can know him through his word. Uh, last week, we started with this uh, story of a guy named Gideon and he fought a particular kind of battle. God met him where he was. He called him. Uh, and then we watched God uh, subsequently provide for him. And today we're going to be in First uh, Kings chapter 17, and we're going to be introduced to another famous biblical figure named Elijah. Uh, and as we're introduced to him, what we're going to learn uh, a little bit about him is the fact that what God wants to do uh, in our lives, what he wants to do in our hearts is he wants to remind us that he is still the same God that he was then. And what he did then, he wants to do in us. And our belief is this, is that over the next few weeks, as we go through May in this series, is that God would want to to reveal to you. He wants to invite you into his story. Uh, if you've been on the sidelines or you've got questions and doubts and fears, you're in good company uh, because God wants to bring you into the story. He wants to provide for you in the story. And so today I want to read the first verse, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. I want to introduce you to two characters, and then we're going to go to school for a little bit because we like to do that around here. Some of us do. We're going to go to school for a few minutes, and then we're going to get to church uh, after that. But I want to read first. Kings chapter 17, verse 1. So if we could go to that scripture up there, this is what it says. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, this story uh, finds itself embedded within uh, a greater narrative, okay? When we read scripture around here, we always wanna make sure that we're reading in context. We wanna make sure that we're 
fit, you know, kind of putting the pieces together. Uh, the Bible is not a loose collection of fables or inspiring stories. It is the story of God, uh, of his continual work within his creation to redeem and restore uh, you and I and restore creation. And so it's always good for us to get a little bit of bearing in this. And so you've been introduced here to a guy named Elijah and a guy named Ahab. And, and I, I'm guessing these are probably uh, not people that you spend uh, your normal day thinking about. So I'd like to set the stage a little bit because last week we kind of gave uh, the outline of the Old Testament uh, so that we could find this story within it. And I'm going to do the same thing today because it's going to have everything to do with understanding the dynamic of what faith has to say in this situation in our lives. And at the end of the day, what we're hoping to do is we're hoping to introduce four questions of faith that every one of us has to cross and has to ask and has to have the answer to in order to see God's faithfulness uh, in our lives. And so I want to lay the, the groundwork a little bit. So if we'll go to that slide real quick, I want to show you kind of where uh, we find ourselves. Last week, we were, uh, we were in the book of Judges. And right after the book of Judges, we have a period we're going to call the kingdom period. This is kind of the famous uh, stories of like King David and Solomon and, and, and those kind of familiar names within history. Uh, and if you know uh, the story a little bit, uh, there was a, uh, coming out of the period of Judges, there was one king named Saul, and he didn't last very long. He was not a good king. Uh, David was then anointed king. David, uh, he becomes kind of the, the, uh, the most famous king uh, in Israel's history. As a matter of fact, by the time you get to New Testament, uh, when you get introduced to Jesus, he uh, is oftentimes called the son of David. Uh, he is the promised Messiah that comes from the lineage of David. Uh, and so these stories uh, interconnect and they're important because what God is doing uh, through the king is he's introducing a couple of things. One, he's introducing leadership obviously, but he's also introducing the, the, the frailty and the failure of kings. Man-made efforts, man-made heroes, man-made leaders, uh, these people, men and women throughout history that we would oftentimes term as heroes, but when we dig deeper into the story, we learn they really weren't heroes at all. They were like normal people like me and you, and they were, they were fatally flawed. And David's story is one of extremes. There's extreme moments of faith, then there's extreme moments of failure. Uh, by the time he um, subsides and he goes uh, right before he goes on to, to be with the Lord after a kind of a, uh, this kind of epic saga of his life, uh, he passes on uh, the kingdom to his son Solomon, uh, uh, obviously another famous historical figure. And when he does, they have this conversation about, hey, he, he tells Solomon, hey, listen, I want you to remain faithful to the covenant of God. I want you to stay faithful to God. Uh, but what's funny about the story is if you read it uh, near the end of uh, uh, second Samuel, first, second Samuel, then we get into first and second Kings. When we get to that point of the story uh, is it's just right after he says that, then they start to plan and plot murder to their political enemies. And so it, it's kind of, again, this extreme, just right uh, on the other side of promising and say, hey, we need to be faithful to God. I mean, it's not the next breath and they're already unfaithful to God. Solomon's reign begins to spiral out of control. Uh, he is, uh, he, he kind of goes down this um, this crazy pathway where he begins to uh, marry off into all these other wives. He has hundreds of wives not following the plan of God uh, for political expediency, expediency and power. He begins to uh, then merge the worship of the people of God with all these foreign gods and it begins to blend and it begins to diminish and water down uh, the purity of God's people and their worship. 
Uh, and ultimately, it gets so bad that he just is given into money and fame, uh, and he's given into uh, sexual immorality. And then by the end of it, he's using slave labor to actually f- uh, uh, front his business and front his kingdom. And so he's beginning to move into periods of injustice where at the, by the end of Solomon's reign, he actually looks more like Pharaoh that they came out of uh, captivity with than he does God. And what that happens uh, within the story of Israel is though the temple is built underneath his reign, it sets in motion a spiral of evil kings. And when you get into the, the books of First and Second Kings, what you get is you get the story, the narrative of the frailty of human kings. Ultimately, it results in the kingdom being split. And when the kingdom is split in the intermittently in that, God is sending a group of prophets to speak to God's leaders and to speak to God's people and to call them back to obedience. And so what we have uh, in this story is we get one of those prophets and one of those kings. The prophet was not a fortune teller talking about, hey, let's guess what the future might hold. He was one appointed by God to call people back to covenantal faithfulness because of the faithfulness of their God. Well, if you follow the story out, if you get to the end of it, it doesn't go well at all because the kings just keep getting worse and worse and worse. And ultimately, the people of God sent into the consequences of their own choosing, which leads them into exile. So this is the story that we find within that narrative. In in that continuum, we find an introduction into the two people I just mentioned, which was Elijah the Tishbite and then Ahab the king. Now, Ahab, if you stop back, if you want to get to see how bad things had spiraled out of control, go back to 1 Kings chapter 16. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 29, this is, this is how bad things got in the spiral out of control. In the 38th year of Asa, the king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, the king of Israel, And he reigned uh, in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So remember that spiral out of control I mentioned. I mean, we are at the pinnacle of evil among God's leaders. They were supposed to be uh, pointing people back to God's faithfulness. They were supposed to be leading people uh, into being a blessing for the nations as a result of and a fruition and a fulfillment of God's promise and his appointment to his nation. But instead, as things spiraled out of control, it kind of reaches its pinnacle with this guy Ahab. And what that means is things begin to get worse and worse and worse. As a matter of fact, if you get to verse 31 and following, just real quick, it says that he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, that means that what uh, once was frowned upon and blushed at, he said it doesn't matter. The things that uh, he was doing, uh, the generation before him would have said, oh man, I can't believe anybody would do that. For him, he said, it's just a trivial thing. The sins of his uh, predecessor, Jeroboam, It was no big deal to him. Things got worse and worse and worse to the point where he married a woman named Jezebel who was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonites, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He even began to transfer his own personal worship from Yahweh, the covenant God, onto Baal. And in doing that, he actually built an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. He builds a temple. Basically, he builds a church. He builds an altar where people can come and give their sacrifices to Baal and not give them to Yahweh. I mean, things are getting bad. If the 
leader is doing these things, then what's it going to say about the people of God? He even made an Asherah pole, and he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So where we're finding ourselves in 1 Kings chapter 17, we are at the pinnacle. We're at the climax of the sin of God's people, the turning away. They're, they're, uh, if you could say, hey, they're at the most unfaithful period that they could be in, this is the, uh, the definition of the unfaithfulness of God's people. But this is the proving ground. This is the point where God is sending a prophet to call them back to faithfulness. And as a matter of fact, when you're introduced to Elijah, you're introduced to the man that his name actually means Yahweh is my God. And so you have this uh, uh, collision, don't you? You have Ahab, who is the one that is farthest away from God of all the leaders. And then you have the one that is named Yahweh is my God, calling the leader back to faithfulness. And this introduces for us, in this collision, this introduces to us four questions you're going to see in the next few verses that are going to be for us, I think, reminders, not of our faithfulness, but things that God may want to work through us so that he could prove his faithfulness to us and then ultimately through us. So we're going to introduce the first question. The first question is the question of authority. This is what happens if you look back at 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. We were introduced to Elijah and we were introduced to Ahab. But watch what it says. It says, said to Ahab. Now, those are three small words and they don't seem uh, that big. But think about it for a second. What he's actually doing when he speaks to Ahab, he's speaking to the most powerful person in his world. Uh, he's going before what we would call today speaking truth to power. Now, whereas with Gideon, uh, he was going and he was fighting a physical battle, what we're having here is not ultimately on the forefront a physical battle, but this is a battle that for most of us is all too real. Uh, for most of us, we might not be called to go out and go to war and fight a physical battle, but what God is calling us to do is to speak truth to power. And this is the most daunting, intimidating thing for many of us. Uh, you heard even in Hunter's testimony, just saying, I don't feel qualified. I don't feel well-versed in this. Uh, I, would, I would say, well, that's the way I feel most of the time. I don't feel like I'm qualified to step in and to actually speak truth to power. But this is the first question, and is the question of authority. Now, when I talk about power, I want to define terms. The word power actually means the capacity or the ability to direct or influence the behavior of others or the course of events. That means that there is a person or there are people or there are phenomenon that are happening that are actually directing and influencing events. Now, what we know about Israel's history is God was the prime mover in their story. They were supposed to respond to his faithfulness. They had been trained to follow behind God, not go before God, but to see where God is leading and to be obedient to his calling, his leading, and his voice. And just like they were the people of God, God's calling us uh, in the same token to be people that are responsive, to be directed and influenced by God and not be directed and influenced by other voices, other phenomenon, other people. We are supposed to follow God. And so what we would say is that anything that is in a position of power other than God is idolatry by definition. 
Now, none of us, I, I don't think, we were out in the backyard constructing, you know, wooden idols or stone idols. But all of us, the people of God, we all have people that are directing and influencing. We have things in our life that are directing and influencing the course of events or our behavior. And so when he steps up, to Ahab. He's standing before the most powerful force on the planet as is known to him, and he has to make a decision. He has to speak truth to power. And power can come in a lot of different forms. The first place you see it in this passage, very isolated, very specific, is it comes in a power of position. Uh, Ahab would just basically say, well, I'm in charge. Uh, If you go back to that first one, he would say, I'm in charge. Uh, And he was. He was the king. He had been given the power. Uh, What he said went. Uh, I build altars. I build temples. I say people are going to do this. They do that. Uh, He was in a position of power. And it's always intimidating to go before the person that's in power that you think is in control of everything and actually speak truth. You see this in a lot of different stories. There's this famous story uh, in David's life, King David's life, where uh, he had committed a grievous sin. Uh, He had uh, committed uh, adultery, then he had committed murder and all these things. And then the prophet uh, Nathan comes to him and he speaks to him and tells him this story, right? And uh, David responds, he says, well, who would ever have done this? If this man, this this individual had done this, then he's guilty and he should be held accountable for his sin. And Nathan says, it's you. And we get this beautiful story of conflict and intervention where someone was willing to speak truth to the most powerful person on the planet. It's always intimidating to speak to someone that's in charge. And that's what you have with Elijah. He had to have the courage to step up and to speak up to the person in charge of power. This is the first question, who is the authority? Well, we all know that it's not always about a position though, right? Because some power is not positional. Sometimes it, it, it's other phenomenon. I, I think with the people of God, there's a few that pop to my mind because it's not always the person that's in charge. Sometimes it's tradition. Sometimes this is just what we do. Uh, it is something that has the power to direct or influence our behavior, to direct events or to influence our behavior. Uh, it, it goes like that. It says, well, this is just what we do. And what happens in just kind of a, a cultural or a social phenomenon, uh, it happens in churches, it happens in any culture, really. It happens in businesses, it happens among sports teams. Uh, what happens to us is, well, this is just what we do. And over time, we've assimilated certain things that are not necessarily in obedience to what God has called us to do, but they just become a part of the environment. It's just the air we breathe. It's just what we do. And so if you challenge tradition, oftentimes you are speaking truth to power and you couldn't put your name on a person or maybe a people group, but it is a phenomenon among God's people oftentimes where we just, after a while, we gravitate towards certain traditions and these are the things that you just can't touch. So you could call them sacred cows or whatever they are, but you better not speak truth to the power that is tradition. Well, what we would know is that everything is subservient to God's word. And sometimes traditions need to be viewed and filtered through and evaluated through God's word. What is God saying? What is God doing? And then we address a tradition. We speak truth to power. Sometimes it's positional. Sometimes it's phenomenon. Another phenomenon you see oftentimes is status quo. Tradition, position, leads to status quo. The, and, and the question becomes with that is like, well, 
it's just comfort. Uh, why would we make things difficult? Why would we shake, uh, you know, make waves? Why would we change things? Uh, why would we actually ask the question, should we do something else? Why make things difficult? I mean, isn't life hard enough as it is? Shouldn't following God be just a little bit easier? And sometimes speaking into status quo to raise the voice, to stand in front and to actually speak truth to the power that is status quo, it actually is very tense, it's very scary. And then ultimately, what often happens between God's people, and I think you'd see this in the story in the people of Israel, you would have seen position, you would have seen they had developed traditions, well, it's just what things are. Status quo, well, why change things? Why make Ahab mad? Why change the culture? It's just, it's okay, we'll just do the best we can. Ultimately, what ends up happening is when this thing takes shape is you begin to protect false unity. What that means is we have to protect unity. Uh, and it, it's kind of this, this thing is like, well, we can't speak truth because if we speak truth, it might fracture the unity. And don't you think that in Elijah's mind that day, all these things could have been happening in his mind. I'm gonna go before the most powerful position I'm going to challenge what is becoming the tradition among our people. It's culturally immersive. I'm a lone voice here. Why should I make things difficult? And isn't it just going to cause more fracturing among the people? Shouldn't I just protect the unity? But there's always an expense of obedience when we make these decisions. When we give in to position and we treat it like it's the authority, then we, we trade silence at the expense of obedience. We say, we're just gonna be silent. And there's times when somebody needs to step up to people that are in positions of power or positions of authority or positions of influence and speak directly to them and say, hey, listen, this is what God's word says. Can we have a conversation about this? This is what God's calling us back to. But you know, there's also a trade-off with tradition. With tradition, there's familiarity at the expense of obedience. You're trading obedience for familiarity. This is what we know. To be obedient means we're going into the unknown. It's very uncomfortable. And that's why we want to preserve the status quo. The status quo means that we want comfort at the expense of obedience. And then ultimately with false unity, we want the appearance of unity at the expense of obedience. And you could see the detriment the, 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 the downward spiral, this was in the air. And any time that you are being called to respond to the faithfulness of God, there are certain idols, there's certain movements of power that we always have to get over. Every one of us does. I know I do. I, I know that there's times in my life where every one of these things has reared their head in my life and said, okay, well, you, this is what's really in control. My comfort's in control. My ability to remain silent, that's in control. Well, I don't wanna cause uh, you know, ripples. I don't wanna cause problems. And so I'm just gonna kinda do my own thing and I just stay to myself and do those things. We all go through these types of things. But here's the deal. When we go through this list of things, what we have to understand is that when, when you are stepping in to speaking truth to power, it is always a question of authority. Matter of fact, if you go back to that verse, this is what the authority kind of comes to the surface. What did he say? What was Elijah's first words? He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, he said, whom I serve. Now, this is the NIV. So if you go to the next slide, I'm gonna compare translations. NIV says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve. 
Now, the NASB, I kind of like this one better on this translation because what it says is, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand. Now, it says the same thing. Uh, and this is just a matter of preference because what I can see in this is if I'm standing before someone in power, oftentimes that's, not, that's all I see. Uh, whatever the situation is in our life, right? Wherever you stand, it's tempting to see the authority of the person you're standing in front, the phenomenon or the force that you're trying to confront, and we forget in whose presence we actually stand. So where does the power to actually speak truth to power come from? Well, the power to speak truth to power depends on the one in whose presence you stand. Who do you see yourself standing for before primarily, right? When you look at the question of the faithfulness of God, when you stand before the faithfulness of God, our faithfulness to him is only a response when we see ourselves standing before the true authority. And there's always a question in our minds, who's in charge? God, are you in charge? Or is this phenomenon in charge? Or is this person in this position in charge? God, what do you say? How do I become obedient? How do I not trade my obedience for silence? How do I not trade my obedience for familiarity? How do I not trade it for comfort? How do I not trade it for false unity? How do I actually lean in and obey what your word says and follow you for who you are? It's a response. So we have to see ourselves. So, I mean, this is Monday through Friday and Monday through Saturday for us. It's like when you're, when you're out there in, in your job, when you're here in church, who is the true authority? Well, the only true authority in the church in the world is Jesus Christ. He is the one that is enthroned. He, he is making his enemies his footstool. Uh, he is now highly exalted above all other names. There's an, every name that could be given. And so he is the true authority. So if you're standing before your Ahab, whatever that is, the question is always going to be a question of authority. In whose presence do you t currently stand? And your ability to see God and to hear his voice becomes paramount for that. Because how do we know the authority of God? Will we spend time with him? You cannot expect in the moment of conflict in your life to actually be prepared for that if you're outside of the presence of God. If you're not continually in God's word, if you're not walking in prayer. And so there is a proactive stance to respond to the faithfulness of God. We have to rehearse the faithfulness of God. When we hear the stories like we're hearing today, when we go through life, when we're in prayer, when we're sharing testimonies with each other and stories with each other, when we're praying for each other, when we're a part of the body of faith, what happens is God is building our reliance on his authority rather than our own. And that's what God has always called his people to do. And that's why Elijah was visiting Ahab that day. He was speaking the truth to the power. He was standing before Ahab in in truth, he was actually standing before God. I'm standing before God. I've got a responsibility to respond to the faithfulness of God. And that always leads into, though, when you do that, I'm just going to be warn you, it's always going to lead you to the second question. It's going to be the question that hinders most of us. It is the question of protection and provision. Look what happens in verse 2 through 4. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, and he said, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook. I'll have directed ravens to supply you with food 
there. So what happens here? He speaks the truth to power, and immediately it's going to send him into a posture, a defensive posture, right? Um, it's interesting that what ends up happening here is the protection and the provision, the word of the Lord to provide that actually happens after obedience. Uh, we live in a world uh, where we like the protection plan. We like the protection plan in, in advance of obedience, don't we? I mean, we do that when we buy anything, honestly. Uh, and you go to Best Buy or you go to Home Depot or wherever you shop, uh, they got this thing now when you uh, buy a new tool or you buy a TV, you go to the cash register and they'll, they'll ask you. They're trained to ask you. Some of you, you work there, you know, this is what you're trained to ask people like me. Uh, I come in there, I buy a new saw and you'll say, hey, do you want to buy the protection plan? And you've got a question, right? You've got, you got to answer the question like, well, do I want the protection plan or do I not? And I'm usually so cheap, I don't usually buy it. Uh, I'm just going to kind of roll the dice and hope it goes well, uh, that kind of thing. But a lot of us, don't we, when it comes to God, where we would choose to opt out of the protection plan for the TV or the saw or whatever it is, we demand of God to give us the protection plan up front. God, I will be obedient to you if... You tell me how you're going to provide. If I can see it on paper, if all the numbers add up, if I can see how all the dominoes are going to fall and how everybody's going to react, well, if I can see that, if I can make sure that it's not going to cost too much, it's not going to be too difficult for me, then if I can see how you're going to protect me, if I do this thing for you, then I'll be obedient. But what you see in this story is you see, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. The provision of protection did not happen until after obedience. We like to do this bartering with God. God, if you will, I will. And God's uh, obedience to the faithfulness of God is God saying, I'm continually faithful to you, and you are responding to my faithfulness to you. And so that means that we have to be obedient. And then, because of confidence of the character and knowing God, an intimacy with God that is produced from time with God, it gives us the power not only to answer the question of authority, but to find the question of protection and provision. What does God say? He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to protect you. But he's honest. You're going to have to run, and you're going to have to hide. Could it mean that when you're obedient to God, things are not going to feel like they're going really well? Absolutely. If you've bought into some preacher some teacher tell you that if you just obey God, everything's going to be great. They're not reading the totality of God's word. Because oftentimes what happens when you're obedient, things don't get better immediately. They get worse. Uh, it doesn't feel great always to be obedient. Not everybody's always going to agree with you. And sometimes people are going to be searching for you and trying to find you. And God's going to have to hide you. But here's what I know about God. You see this all through scripture. He is the rock of my salvation. He is my fortress. He is my shelter. Matter of fact, there's words that says that we are sheltered underneath his wings. He's like a mother that protects her little ones. This is the God. He's a warrior. He's a parent. And he will hide you underneath the strength of his wings. But obedience precedes provision. The call happens before the meal. The call happens before the shield. What God wants to do in our life calls us to continually respond to the faithfulness of God, trusting that the God who spoke it, the God who initiated it, is the one that's going to provide 
through it. So what does he say? Hey, I'm going to send you. You're going to have to hide. He's honest. But he doesn't say you're going to have to hide. He says, I'm also going to feed you there. Because what was the, what was the uh, called Ahab? Well, he said, hey, I said, I'm going to make it stop raining. Why would he say that? Well, first of all, the, the God of Baal was the one that they trusted in for the rains. They prayed to Baal. They made sacrifices to Baal. And so Baal was supposed to be the one that was supposed to bring the rains. Uh, I wish I could go into all the history of that. It's really interesting. Uh, if you want to find some reading on it, I can point you in the right direction. But suffice to say, he's going into the theological core of the fallacy of this idolatry. He's saying, listen, I'm going to take away what you're trusting in as a nation. And what this means, if you're attacking everyone else's protection and provision, then that means you're going to need protection and provision. Why? Because what exactly he was saying was he was also subject to. He was living in the nation that he just said, hey, turn the water off. That meant who else is going to not have water? He is. And when it comes to speaking God's word, we have to be the type of people that said, hey, listen, even if it costs me, even if it costs me, even if I don't know where my next meal is going to come from, right is right. God is in control of his people. God is in control of his church. And I'm going to submit to him. And in doing so, I'm turning the water off. Not just on you, Ahab, but I turned it off on me. And if God doesn't come through to protect me from you, and if he doesn't come through to provide for me, then I'm done just like you. And so God commands ravens. He puts them by a brook. He's hiding out for his life. And for much time, he did exactly what the Lord told him to do. He goes to this ravine, uh, as he was told, and he went to there on the east of the Jordan. He stayed there. And then the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. uh, And he drank from the brook. So Uber Eats is showing up in the morning and in the evening. They're bringing his meal, and it's interesting. They're being delivered by what Leviticus actually terms a profane bird. You were not supposed to touch a raven uh, as, a, as a Jew. You, there, you can read it for yourself back in Leviticus. Uh, they didn't like eagles, so I'm sorry, Americans. It was a profane bird. Uh, buzzards, and it said every kind of raven. And so what did God do? God said, I'm going to take, take the thing that you think is profane, the thing that you would never touch, and he's going to bring you your food. Now, I don't know what that looks like to you. It's like taking a steak and putting it on top of a, uh, a garbage can lid. Right? Now, the steak looks good, but you're kind of like, mm, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to eat that or not. So even trusting in the provision, God was working it out where even though the food was coming, there was a constant decision every time the food came. Am I going to trust God to protect me every time the food showed up? And this is what it looks like to answer the question of provision. But there's a problem with provision. Because I know you and I know me, is we get addicted to provision. We become the type of people after God has provided, God has provided, God has provided, we become enamored or addicted to the very provision of God. And there's a danger And it's going to lead us to our third question. It's the question of provision versus provider. Because watch what happens. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Remember that whole famine, that whole cut off the rain thing? Well, eventually the brook dries up. 
And then the word of the Lord came to him and said, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. Now, if you've been, if God has hid you and you've been safe, uh, there is this thing called inertia. Uh, Things that are not in motion, they need an outside force to move them (laughs) into motion. Uh, It's what some of us need to be reminded with physical activity, okay? Uh, That's me. It's like really hard to get moving if you're not moving uh, and that type of thing. Well, if you look at the story here, this is what happens to us spiritually. God provides. We see God move miraculously. And at first, we're thankful for God for providing. But along the way, we get so addicted to the provision, it's easy for us to supplant the provider with the provision, We turn a resource into our source. It happens in churches all the time uh, where people say, well, I saw God move back then and we get addicted to something God did in the past. And then God says, well, I'm going to dry that up. We're doing something different now. And we're like little kids. We're like little kids. Well, I want it my way. Now, in our family, we've got traditions, okay? Okay. And I didn't really know, my wife is really good at traditions, I'll just say this, I, I'm not that way as much, I've become that way over 25 years, but uh, my wife was very um, instrumental in creating family traditions for our family. And, and I was kind of always the one that was like, well, you know, I don't know. Like, I mean, I'd rather spend money on like something that I can use rather than going on a vacation. That's just, you know, how everybody's a little different. And now that I'm older, I see like how much difference it made. And I'm so glad that we invested in those traditions and those relationships. Well, I didn't know how powerful the traditions had become around Christmas and stuff because we do the same thing every Christmas. We do cookies the same. We decorate the tree the same. We have all these old ornaments. If you see our, our tree, it's not like something that you're going to see in a department store. It is an, uh, an am- amalgamation of things that we've created through the years. But everything has a story. And when we were moving houses one year, uh, we were like, man, we got the tree packed up and we were, it was right at Christmas time and we were stressed out, Veronica and I were stressed out. And so we, we came up with this idea that we were just going to do like the names of God on the tree and they were all gonna be the same. My kids are heathen because they were like, no, we're not. We're not putting names of God all over this tree. We want our old ornaments and we want to find them. We need to go to the storage building. We need to find them. We need to hang them on the tree. We had a, a, a mass mutiny on our hands. We got four kids. We're outnumbered, okay? And so we were, we were in a position where we were like, man, we have created a monster with these traditions, right? But we're the same way. We're like kids with God. God, well, you've always done this. It's always looked like this. And God steps in sometimes with churches He steps in in our lives and he said, you know what? That was good for a season, but I've got something new for you. And that's why when we respond to God, we're responding to the the preceding word of God. We're moving with God. We're, We're following the voice of God. That's why it's contingent upon our ability to be able to be in God's presence as people. God, what are you saying? Where are you leading us? Because here's the thing. This is what we get guilty of, and I think this was the challenge, and it's the the fact that you can't become dependent on his last provision, but on his continuing presence. Where in your life are you dependent on the way God provided back there? Because oftentimes, the thing that is the most challenge for us is not our past failure, it's our past success. 
God, you did that back then. What about now? It's got to look like that because it's familiar to me. And God is saying the life of faith is to understand that the provision is always on the edge of, of, of obedience. Provision is always on the edge of obedience. It's always on the leading edge. It's, uh, and as I get older, this is a hard place for me to live. When everything feels like it needs to be slowing down and get orderly, God is continually pushing us. He's continually leading. Why? Because he's going someplace that we haven't gone yet. Why? Because he's already there. This is the way that he worked with God's people in the past. He's not changed. He's still the God. He didn't do all that so that we could just sit and be comfortable in our faith. He's moving us to the edge of obedience because that's the place of provision. Because here's the danger. If you get addicted to the provision of the past, the brook is going to dry up. And when the brook dries up, your provision leaves. Why? Because you've mistaken the provision for the provider. And that's the question, isn't it? I mean, watch how that part ends in verse seven and nine. It says, sometime later, the brook dries up. He says, go to Zarephath, the region of Sidon, and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. Okay, you went from ravens to a widow, okay? And not just that, you're taking me to Zarephath? This is in the heart of Baal worship. This is the place, you're, you're, you're taking me in. You're, you're moving me out of the cliff, and you're gonna stick me in the fire after all this time? And God said, listen, yeah, I'm going to take a weak and frail widow, and that's my next plan. Well, there's a decision to be made. There's always a decision to be made because God is continually confronting provision versus provider. So he takes him to the widow. And this gets to our last question. And this is the question of mission. This is the question of mission. He went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called her and he said, hey, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I can have a drink? I mean, he's dehydrated, right? You know, I mean, he's, he, he's been walking. He, the brook's been dried up. I don't, I don't know how long the journey was. I didn't check that out. But as she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. This is like when the waitress or the waiter's walking away from you and you feel a little bit rude, you know, you're like, oh yeah, 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 but would you also get me some, bring me some bread, <laughs> you know, like that. I mean, he had to feel a little rude saying it, but he's hungry, he's at his last leg and his only person he can depend on is this woman that's out gathering sticks, this widow. And this is her response. Her response to him was simply this, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any. <laughs> I don't have any. So stop, hit pause for a second. So God told him a widow was going to provide for him and he forgot to tell the widow. She didn't know. She didn't get the memo. She didn't get an email. There wasn't a raven that kind of got off course and said, hey, you know, because God can do that kind of thing. He can speak through animals back in the Old Testament, right? Uh, some of y'all think he can do that now. I don't, that's a whole other conversation. But no memo. And now he's there. He is about to die of thirst. He is hungry. He is famished. He speaks to the widow. God, this is apparently your plan. And the first thing he hears is, I don't have any. But what I do have is a handful of flour in a jar, and I got a little bit of oil in a jug. So this is what I do have. 
I'm gathering a few sticks, and what am I doing? I'm taking it home to make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Now, here's the cool thing. What's about to happen is Elijah thought God was bringing him there to provide for him, but this is what God always does. God is actually going to use this situation not just to provide for him, but he's actually going to provide for her. He didn't tell her because she was not one of God's people. What did she say? She said, as the Lord your God lives. She didn't say, as my God lives. She doesn't have a relationship with Yahweh. She's not following Yahweh, but she, she can recognize with Elijah, hey, this guy's a Jew. And as your God lives, this is what I have. Because here's the thing, the question at the end of the day is a lot of times we think this is all about us. God, will you provide for us? God, will you protect us? But here's the heart of God always at the end. The end is always a question of mission for God because it's not just about him providing for you. If you are a person that's following God, yes, God cares about you. God loves you. God's gonna protect you. God wants to provide for you. But you know what he ultimately wants? He wants to display his faithfulness through you, not just to you. He wants to move through you so that the end point, the, uh, the, thing, the dead end of faith is never you. And a lot of times we come to church and we certainly think it's about us. We, we think, God, what are you going to do in me? God, how are you going to act in me? What are you going to provide for me? How are you going to protect me? I got all these things going on. God, God, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. And God is saying there is a transfer in faith when you go through the questions of authority, the questions of protection and provision, when you flip and you answer the question from moving from provision to provider, because God is positioning each one of you to answer the question of mission. That what God wants to do in you is ultimately connected to what he wants to do through you. That's what happened through the person of Jesus. The end goal of the gospel was that God stepped out of heaven and he came. He endured suffering for you. And through it, God provided and protected you from the wrath of God. And in doing so, he raised Jesus up and he did that so that he could impart the Holy Spirit to you and me and so that we could live lives in response to his faithfulness. Why? Because there's a lot of people out there that by us going and actually asking the question and not coming as a place where we got it all figured out, but he came to the people outside in a position of need. Did you catch that? A lot of times the people of God are the last ones to admit to the people that don't know God or not following Jesus, or oh, we don't need you, you need us. But what he did is he went to them and he said, hey, you know what, I need you. What if we flipped the posture as the people of God and we went to a lost and dying world and we didn't act like we had everything, we said, hey, we need you. And in the question of getting that answered is God uses us to truly give them what they need because people are not projects. People are objects of the love of God. And sometimes we gotta get into a position that God took so that God could resurrect lives. And that's what you see in the story of Elijah. That's what we see in the person of Jesus, that he was the perfect Elijah. He's the one that speak he would speak truth to power. He did the hard thing, he was obedient. And God raised him and exalted him so that we could all find faith in him because he is the faithfulness of God. The victory that we're all looking for in life is in the person of Jesus. 
the same God of the Old Testament, same God of new, the same God of 2021. And God is taking us deeper into a relationship with him. You may not know him today, but he wants to know you. I'm gonna ask if you would, if you bow your head and close your eyes, the band's gonna come out as we finish up. I wanna ask you a couple of questions as you, as you uh, just kind of get in a posture of prayer where you can think for a second. I don't know what the Lord is speaking to you. I don't pretend to, to know all that, but I do trust his word that when his word is read, I don't even have to say anything, his word is power. And so if God is speaking to you right now and he's calling you to himself, he's calling you to respond to his faithfulness. It's not about proving yourself to him. It's about the fact that he's proven himself through Jesus to you. And so would you now respond to his faithfulness to you? Repent of your sin. Call upon him. Say, I want to follow you, Jesus. In your own words, just speak to him in the privacy of your mind and heart. Speak to him right now. If you're taking that step of faith, would you be bold enough to share that with us? I'm not going to ask you to come forward or, or raise your hand or do anything thing like that. But there is a connection card in the back of the seat in front of you. There's a place where you can indicate that. And we would love to just come around you and support you and, and help you on your next step of faith uh, as best we can. That's, we feel like that's our privilege to get to do that. And so you can drop that in the offering boxes as you leave today or the right at the doors. Um, what is God challenging you to? What question are you stuck on today? Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God today. God, we come before you uh, as your people. We uh, recognize you're the true authority. Your word says that uh, not only did you make yourself a servant, but you were a servant to the point of death, death on a cross, but you were resurrected. And because of that, you are highly exalted and your name is the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. And so we choose to do that right now. We rest in your victory, God. We rest in your resurrection. We rest in your power. We set before you, God, and we say that you are the authority of our lives. You're the authority of this church. God, we are your people called by your name. And so we want to live that way. We want to see you resurrect people in our lives. There are people right now that are lost, uh, that don't know you, don't know the hope and the freedom. God, will you make us bearers of freedom, life, and hope uh, as a church? Would you help us, God, to lead others? Uh, would you help us to have a posture of humility to the world around us so that we can not just say, you need us, but God, we need you. Uh, would you help us to do that, God? Break down the barriers and the obstacles in our hearts and mind, creating us a new faith, God. We do not want to trade in the provider for the provision today. So Lord, strengthen us, humble us, God, empower us through your power. In Jesus' name, amen.